The only way to tell whether any revision or any translation is good or not is to go out and test it. Mm -hmm. Ask people what they think. Yeah. Many people don't even recognize the phrase, God bless you, as being a wish. Yeah. I know this for a fact. I think they're still using it in marriages, though. Like, I may say I do. I may say I do. <laughs> you may say I do? Yeah. You may kiss the bride? I, that I, sort of I, might, I might kiss the bride. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the subjunctive. Uh, okay, all right, all right. Thanks for clearing that up. Woo! You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. Join us as we explore the depths of theology, philosophy, and the Christian intellectual life. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts. I'm joined by Dr. Jim Pullig. Today, we're going to be talking about how liturgy influences theology, understanding of theology, and how translation of liturgy impacts um, a congregant's understanding of their denominational beliefs. So bring us in, Jim. Another example of the use of the word mystery in the liturgy is in the prayer of consecration leading up to communion, where the priest says, Therefore we proclaim the mystery of faith, and then the congregation says, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Now, these three phrases, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, are evidently the content of this so-called mystery of faith. But remember, in modern parlance, a mystery is an unsolved riddle. Right. But there's nothing to be solved here. Right. In fact, it is a glorious revelation from God himself through his scriptures that Christ has died, he has risen, and he will come again. The focus is not on any unsolved riddle. The focus is upon what has been revealed to us. Mm -hmm. A better translation would be something like, therefore we proclaim what God has revealed to us. Yeah. Or we proclaim what our faith grasps mm -hmm. about God's revelation to us, or something that's a little bit wordy, but something like yeah. that. Something that takes away any ambiguity of, of understanding. Because, exactly. I mean, there has to be, you know, and it's pretty clear from the Bible, and um, I'm sure that a lot of uh, Sola Scriptura people are like, exactly, and that's why you only need the Bible. You use those extra books, and it messes you all up. Um, but I, I think that that example is, is important. And you see this in apologetic stuff, too, about the resurrection is that it was not a mystery. One of the arguments for the resurrection of Jesus is that it was not a mystery to them, which is why they were able to die for their faith, was because they actually did understand what had happened in the resurrection and had experienced it. And, and so I think that, that one, I think, is really important because, you know, in our apologetics work, we don't presume that the apostles had an unsolved mystery view of the resurrection. Because why would you die for it? Why would you even suffer for it? If it's if it's actually something that's been revealed to be true, then, you know, like we talked about on the last podcast, is truth is obligatory and, and necessitates that you suffer for it. Yes. And if it's, if it's an unsolved mystery, then you've got an out. These things can really only be grasped by the soul 
when you are inside the Christian faith. When I was a boy, an analogy was given to me that I've always remembered. You think of these big European cathedrals. Mm-hmm. You look at the windows, the stained glass windows. When you're on the outside, they look black yeah. or nearly black. Mm-hmm. You have to go inside in order to see the, the dazzling colors yeah. where the sunlight pours through them. Mm-hmm. You only see the colors from inside. Yeah. A, any church like that is far more beautiful inside than outside. And so also, by analogy, the truths of Scripture can only really be grasped by the heart and by the soul as well as by the mind inside the Christian faith. Yeah. Well, and I, when we actually came into the Anglican Church, what was shocking was how much it was like church when I was a kid. And, and you know, we, we grew up in a, uh, a Baptist church, you know, well, not Lindsay and I, but I grew up in a Baptist church where we sang hymns, you know. We didn't have, like, a book of common prayer or anything, but we did have a, a pretty solid structure to the service. It was the same way every week. You know, you sang two hymns, and they were always in the same spot. So, Jim, I think that this ties into the consequences and implications of watering down theological language. Obviously, you know, people outside of liturgical traditions will say, well, yeah, that's only, you know, if, you're, if your book of common prayer is messed up, you know, that's going to affect Anglicans, but it's not going to affect me. Hmm. But I, I don't think that that's necessarily true. That might be the default. I think I would have thought that. I would have been like, well, my church is okay. What's the big deal? Well, the problem is the largest denominations in the world are liturgical. And so they do have a strong force on what is considered to be quote-unquote Christian by the rest of the world. And so if your liturgies are off, that actually affects a lot of how the conversations go about what the truth of Christianity actually is, because you're more likely to come in contact with a Catholic or a Lutheran or an Eastern Orthodox around the world than you are to come in contact with, say, you know, a Southern Baptist. And so I think that you know, this has an impact because even if you don't recognize what's going on, even if you don't have a shared liturgical format, if the rest of the world, especially when you listed off, you know, the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, the Eastern Orthodox, well, not the Eastern Orthodox, but the uh, Roman Catholic and the Lutherans, those are the biggest denominations in the world. And so that has a big influence on the conversation around what are the revealed truths and what are the mysteries of the faith just at the at the most basic level of congregant and congregant meeting in a coffee shop having a conversation about what they believe hmm. and um you had another example though of um certain hope of the resurrection on page 129 that you wanted to touch base on well it's another example of the kind of in-house technical church language that we often find in our Bible, English Bible versions, and that we often as well find in English liturgies. Mm-hmm. So we have a prayer here, for all those who have departed this life in the certain hope of the resurrection. And let me just insert real quick, this is part of the prayers of the people. Yes. So this would be, in the, for those who aren't aware, this would be later on in the service, um, and I believe it's right before communion, right? Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. Now, this four, we don't have to pray for the dead, but you see what follows. In thanksgiving, let us pray. So Mm -hmm. in thanksgiving, let us pray, thanking God for all those who have departed this life. But in other words, we do not have to give God petitions to help those who have departed this life already. They are 
believing in Christ, safe and secure with him mm-hmm. for all eternity. But I believe that the import of the petition is, in thanksgiving, let us pray, giving thanks for all those who have departed this life. In the certain hope of the resurrection, now, there's a jarring miscollocation here. What, what do you mean, miscollocation? I mean, two words don't go together very well, like certain and hope. Okay. Is your family going to visit you at Christmas this year? You can say, oh, I'm certain of it. Or you can say, I hope they will. Mm. But if you say, I have certain hope they will, how would that come across? Yeah. I'm truly false. <laughs> <laughs> so what is a certain hope? I think it's a problem of importing. It's like a clean sin. It's a problem, perhaps, of importing a church meaning of the word hope. Mm -hmm. It goes all the way back, I identify it, to uh, translations, for example, of 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, now these three things abide faith, hope, and love. Mm. It's well known among Bible translators that the Greek word elpis refers to more something more solid for the future than hope. It refers to a sure confidence mm-hmm. of something coming about in the future. Paul is not talking about a wishy-washy hope. Right. He's talking about a sure confidence mm-hmm. for the future that God has for us. So really that verse should be better translated for us something on the order of these three things abide, faith, confidence for the future, and love. Mm-hmm. But we'll never find translations that way that are favored <laughs> by the English-speaking public because it doesn't look mm, traditional enough. Yeah. So what happens is the same four-letter word, H-O-P-E, is then imported into the liturgy mm-hmm. and producing things like certain hope of the resurrection. Right. Why couldn't the framers simply have said, for those who have departed this life in the confidence of the resurrection? Mm-hmm. Now, now, let me ask you this. Do you at least think they were attempting to get it right and this was just kind of like a swing and a miss? Because, I mean, it seems like, why, why even add the word certain hope? unless they, they were trying to compensate for a, a popular conception of, of, I hope they'll come for, for Christmas, you know. It seems like those who are writing this, just to, you know, give a, to ask them kind of a, just a question that comes to me is, are they actually attempting to, to put the confidence that you're, you're saying should be there, they just didn't do a good job? I think any attempt to get inside their minds would probably be, be mistaken. I could speculate mm-hmm. that they wanted to keep the time-honored word hope, which we find in our right. English Bible versions, but then they wanted to say, uh, well, you know what? It's not just wishy-washy hope, so let's stick the word certain on the front of it. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yes. So we have this, this, this misbegotten phrase, certain yeah. hope, that makes no sense to the man in the street. Right. And so this would be my next question is, you know, we've talked about the development of language a little bit. Is this just a natural consequence of language development? No. The okay. man in the street doesn't talk this way. Uh, of certain hope? Mm-mm. No, but he probably has a view of hope that's wishy-washy. Yes, he, he certainly and does. So, and so the translator, though, 
is the one who recognizes, well, there's this this challenge of the person on the street who has a different understanding of hope than what's actually conveyed in the scripture. And now we've got to make a liturgy off of this. I and would say so, that I would say that the scriptures don't talk in this vein, don't talk about hope at all. They talk about confidence. Okay, gotcha. They talk about certain confidence for the future that God has for us. The kind of confidence of which Paul speaks, for example, in Romans chapter eight. Mm-hmm. And that the weight of tradition in Bible translation, which as I said before, I believe invades lock, stock, and barrel, the formation of our liturgies as well. Right. Therefore, overwhelmingly influences the choice of the word hope here, even though it's it's not appropriate. Right. For the sense that should be conveyed. Right. And so, and I guess that kind of leads me back to the maybe restating the question a different way is obviously there's politics in in the formation of some of these kinds of liturgies and stuff. There's mm. people who are involved and people are saying, well, I think this is how it should be. This is how I think it should be. Mm. Isn't that how kind of translation projects work? Is It's not like one guy saying this is what it needs to be. It's more of like a group of people like Certainly, you have committees, ideas and committees. You have and committees things. and commissions, certainly. But one of the values in tradition, in, sorry, in liturgy is the maintenance of tradition. But you have to ask carefully, I think, what, what is it about tradition that you want to maintain in liturgy? Do you want to maintain the same words, even though the words may change in meaning over the centuries? Is that the tradition you mean? Or is it the tradition of good doctrine, mm. good teaching? Some may think that the word hope perhaps is more beautiful a term than confidence. Mm-hmm. And I do agree that all other things being equal, we ought to make our liturgies beautiful. Beautiful language is more memorable than unbeautiful language. Mm-hmm. And I would say that all other things being equal, beautiful language has a a better chance of honoring God. Yeah. But not at the expense of miscomprehension, mm-hmm. would be my point. That you have to make sure that comprehension is achieved. Another good example of that is the, the death of the English verbal mood uh, that we call the subjunctive. And we find a, a large problem in our liturgies with the death of the subjunctive mood. So before we go into that, Let's just recap. What do you think are the qualities of a of a good liturgy? As far because you mentioned uh, beauty, and uh, there were a couple of categories. Can you list them off again? Beauty of language. Beauty of language. The maintenance of tradition. The maintenance of tradition in language, insofar as that can be achieved mm-hmm. without sacrificing comprehension. Certainly, the the maintenance of the of the dependence of of liturgical language on scriptural language. Yeah. Okay. I got them right here. I got them right here in mm-hmm. your notes. Uh, faithful reflection of scripture. Yes. Maintenance of denominational tradition and beauty. And then you, you mentioned that comprehension doesn't seem to be among the values, though. That's right. Okay. Got it. All right. Now let's go into the subjunctive. The subjunctive. Subjunctive. Yeah. 
So the subjunctive is a verbal mood that I suppose maybe it it characterized verb systems of the Proto-Indo-European language, say even an ancestor of all most European languages, including including English, some six thousand years ago even. So the subjunctive mood is used for expressing counterfactuality, hypothesis, wishes, desires. Can you give some examples? Of course. If I were you, I wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> if I were you. Okay. Now, we have taken that out to and, and substituted if I was you. Mm -hmm. But if I were you, I were is the subjunctive. Okay. What's, okay. what's, what's a couple more examples, just so if people have a... God more... bless you. Okay. That's that's the use of the subjunctive, or it's the absence of it? Oh, the absence would be a statement. God blesses you would be a statement. Got it. Okay, gotcha. God bless you is a wish okay. or a desire. Like, may God bless you. May is short for may God bless you. Gotcha. And here is the conundrum, talking about riddles, that truly may have no answer. This is the mystery. This is the mystery. Okay. For some reason, the framers of English liturgies have demonstrated a fierce antipathy towards the English particle may, M-A-Y. It would be easy to say in a liturgy, may God be with you. Mm -hmm. Nothing easier. Yeah. But for some reason that eludes, I cannot even speculate about why this should be. The framers of the liturgy come down on the side of God bless you instead of may God bless you. But here is the damage done. Because the English subjunctive as a verbal mood is, for all intents and purposes, dead yeah. now, many people don't even recognize the phrase God bless you as being a wish. Yeah. I know this for a fact. I think they're still using it in marriages, though. Like, I may say I do. I may say I do. <laughs> you may say I do? Yeah. You may kiss the bride? I, that I, sort of I may? Might, I might kiss the bride. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the subjunctive. Oh, okay, all right. But all right. anyway. Thanks for clearing that up. Whew. Let me tell you a story. Okay. About going on 10 years ago. I was in an adult Sunday school class in our parish. One Sunday morning, and our rector was bringing to us the the proposed book for common prayer that had been drafted by the Anglican Commission on Liturgy, and he was reading it to us because at that time the commission was actually actively seeking for feedback. And so he read parts of the liturgy like the Lord be with you or God bless you, God forgive you. Uh, these, are all, these are all wishes. So there was one blessing, the ironic blessing, mm -hmm. the Lord bless you and keep you. And I asked the rector for a poll, a straw poll, if I could do it right then and there in the Sunday school room, there were about 40 or 45 adults yeah. there. 
I said, the Lord bless you and keep you. Please raise your hand if you think this is a statement of fact. Yeah. And about half the hands went up. Now, thank you. Now, please raise your hand if you think this is a wish or a desire. About half, the other half of the hands went up. Yeah. And I said, now, as a matter of fact, this is a wish or a desire. It does not express a statement of fact. The liturgy is not saying here, the Lord is blessing you. The liturgy says, may the Lord bless you. In other words, the priest wants the Lord to bless the people. The Lord bless you. And there was a gentleman who said, I dispute that idea. I have a degree in English, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that what it means is the Lord is blessing us. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, but... In that case, it should say the Lord is, the Lord blesses. It should not say the Lord bless. He said, I've wondered about that. <laughs> and he says, I think it uses the plural form bless, like they bless, mm-hmm. he blesses. I think it uses the plural form because God is triune. Mm. So you see, he was interpreting the third person singular subjunctive form, the Lord bless. He, w- he was reinterpreting it as a third-person indicative plural form, the Lord blesses. Gotcha. So he, was, he had so far participated in the murder of the subjunctive mood mm. in English that he was trampling over the corpse and remaking <laughs> it into a third-person indicative form. So would you say he was incorrect? Uh, slightly. <laughs> and he just my, made a Frankenstein. My observation to the director was we would all be better off. Mm-hmm. We would go a long way towards alleviating or perhaps doing away entirely with this misunderstanding mm-hmm. if we just used the particle may. May the Lord bless you mm-hmm. and keep you. But it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Because for some reason, the, the Commission on Liturgy does not like the word may. Hmm. And And... Are you saying that, so part of the reason why it would be there theologically is that the priest can't tell God what to do, right? Is that what we're saying? No, I don't think so. Okay. Because if it's a wish, then why does it matter versus a statement or not? Because it seems... Any translator is going to say, you have to distinguish between wishes and statements of fact. Yeah. So my question is, is why is it important? Like, what is the, why is it more accurate as a wish theologically? Because in Scripture, it's a wish. Okay. It's a blessing. Gotcha. It's a calling down of divine favor. Okay. Upon people. Okay. And if it's a statement of fact, then it's no longer a calling down. So are you saying, like, like in the Psalms and stuff, like when it says, you know, uh, that there's, there's these subjunctives in there, sub, am I saying that right? Subjunctive? Well, not in Hebrew. Hebrew does not have any subjunctive mood. Okay. It has what we call a volative set okay. of, of verb forms, and that has to do with expressing volition. But don't they, don't they translate a lot of our psalms in that way? Probably. Say, probably. You know, may the Lord smite my enemies and yes, take yes, care of, course. of my, you of know. Course. Of course. And, and so, but theologically speaking, it's not a statement of fact. No, it's a it, wish. It's a wish. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, it's up to God whether or not He does. Of course, uh, okay. the 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 commentators may call it imprecations. 
that is to say, calling down God's anger upon one's enemies, mm-hmm. oppose, O God, those who oppose me, this yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. But if a translation cannot allow people to distinguish between statements of fact on the one hand and other kinds of utterances mm-hmm. on the other hand, then something's wrong. Yeah. Any, well, probably wrong. Any <laughs> translator worth his salt would see a big red flag here. Okay. And so we have to investigate this. Yeah? Yeah. So, so let me ask you this question. For priests that might be listening, especially younger ones, right? I mean, you've got how many years of Bible translation experience total? A lot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Decades. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's just make a nice round 40. Would you say 40 years? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the average priest who's got an MDiv, let's say he's, I don't know. I don't know if this is the actual stat, but let's just say he's 40 years old. He's just gotten ordained. He's got his MDiv. He's fresh out of the seminary. He's, you know, not, he has not nearly the amount of translation work and stuff like you have. What, what's his responsibility uh, in offsetting some of these errors in the liturgy? Change the liturgy. This sounds flippant, but I'll tell you this, that a person's native language is a very stubborn thing. Mm-hmm. A person's native language always wins out over any amount of education that may be thrust at the person from outside. My wife, Laura, and I once attended, for one Sunday morning, an Anglican service in the mountains in Virginia. It was very well done. And the whole liturgy was printed out. You remember the name of the church? You want to give them a plug? No, I don't. Okay. You don't remember or you don't want to give them a plug? <laughs> Laura, do you remember? <laughs> Next door to Massanutten, Virginia. Okay. In the Shenandoah Valley. Okay. Sort of in the in the upper end, that is to say the southern end of the Shenandoah Valley. Okay. And um, the whole liturgy was printed out, and there was a very wide margin in the pages. And in the margin, all these stars or these asterisks said, this is what this means. Mm-hmm. It was, it was actually an annotated liturgy. Huh. That makes sense? It makes sense. If you aren't going to improve the liturgy's language, well, at least explain it. Yeah. So, but the, 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 there is a, a principle in translation, or it should be a principle, that the mother tongue always wins out. The mother tongue is stronger than virtually any amount of education. That is to say, if, if you have a text that says John hit Bill, and if you in, insist when translating it into another language as Bill hit John, with an explanation be, below that this really means John hit Bill, mm-hmm. the explanation will pass by most people. Yeah. Their mother tongue will win out. So why not just respect the mother tongue and say the thing, in our case, plain English? Mm -hmm. It can still be 
beautiful English. It can be even slightly archaic. I have nothing too much against these and thous. Why? Because even a three-year-old or a four-year-old can can very quickly learn what these and thous mean. Yeah. Yeah, there's not a huge learning curve on those terms. No. Yeah. But it's these other things that catch people by surprise. These these archaic use uses of grammar or mm -hmm. these 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 violations of the modern or contemporary use of grammar or nuances of language right. like in our prayers where we end up being adversaries of God in our prayers instead yeah. of suppliants. I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I wanna, wanted to dive into next. Was, Go for it. Was the, uh, you have uh, some, some of the notes you gave me before we got onto the podcast was uh, Cardinal Esteves writing to the International Commission on English Liturgy, the ICEL. And what you brought up here was this idea of putting us into an adversarial position. Vis-a-vis -vis God. Yeah. And so dive into that. Explain, explain what, what, what Cardinal Estevez is, uh, is bringing up here. He wrote, Cardinal Estevez of the Catholic Church wrote this letter in 2002 to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. At that time, they were revising the format of liturgical prayers. Okay, in the English for in the English, Catholics. In English, but in probably in other languages too. Okay. It was a movement, it was post-Vatican II movement at the time. Remember the Second Vatican Council in the uh, early to mid-60s of the 20th century opened the door to vernacularization of the Latin liturgy. What do you mean by that? The Translation into mother tongues. Okay. And the celebration of, of the Eucharist, of the, of the liturgy of the Mass in mother tongues. What year was that? I believe the Second Vatican Council ended, I think it was like 62 to 65. Oh, wow. Okay. Something like that. All right. But it took time, oh, yeah. years, for this thing to ramp up. Yeah. And eventually they got around to addressing the format of the collects. A collect is a technical term for a prayer. There are set prayers for every Sunday and every festival that yeah. suppose, supposedly collect the thoughts of the day into a right. prayer. Like festivals being like Easter, Christmas, Advent, those kinds of festivals. Yes. right? Yeah. or every, every Sunday. Okay. So here's an example. From, from, for Easter Sunday, okay. from the Anglican prayer book. O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, when the first day of the week you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory, and so forth. Now, Going back centuries and centuries and centuries and just, centuries. Just, just to be clear, it doesn't say and so forth in the actual collect. Jim no. is, is stopping the quote right there. Thank you. <laughs> we just want to make sure we see a bunch of Anglicans out there, you know, and uh, redeem all our days by this victory and so forth. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> the Baptists are like going out there. They're like, I was listening to this podcast and they got all these collects and they end them with an and so forth. Can you believe that? <laughs> the traditional Catholic Latin yeah. formulation of these prayers was the so-called Deus qui formulation. That is to say, God who, it would have read something like, O God, who by the resurrection of thy son Jesus Christ on the first day of the week conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life, redeem all our days by this victory. The formulation was almost always 
O God, comma, who has done this, that, or the other thing. For Christmas, it may be something like, O God, comma, who on this most holy night caused your son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin. Mm-hmm. Comma, grant that we may hold him in our hearts and revere him by mm-hmm. faith, or something like that. Yeah. So the formula is always an address to God and then a relative clause detailing typically something that he has done. O God, who on this most holy night or who on this Easter day caused the resurrection of your son? And then another comma and then a prayer, a petition. Grant that. That was always the... Now, I believe it's the same Cardinal Esteves who pointed out somewhere in one of his writings that the reason for this formulation in the Latin liturgy is quite simple. This was how Roman emperors were addressed in court. Mm -hmm. And so it was natural that the Latin church would take over the same formula formula for addressing God. Hmm. Now, it's not common now in English to address a person in this way. You know, I don't, I don't see you at church, Daniel, on Sunday, and I say, Daniel, who had me over to his place last night, or Daniel, who had me over to your place last night, comma, it's good to see you this morning again. Well, I've been meaning to talk to you about this, Jim, because, <laughs> you know, I really feel like we need a little higher level of respect if you're going to come back on the podcast. <laughs> so next Sunday, tomorrow, you better you better throw those, those Roman emperor kind of introductory sentences at me. <laughs> so on the strength of this objection yeah. to wit that we don't talk this way, the argument was made and carried the day that we'd have to revise the, the formulation of these prayers. Well and good. So what did they revise them to? Well, they revised them to, O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Period. Redeem all our days by this victory. Unquote. Now, as Cardinal Esteve says, there's something wrong with it. He said what is wrong is that it sounds like he's reminding God of something he did that maybe he's forgotten about. Mm-hmm. I think he put his finger on a nuance of English communication, which is very true. And I would put it this way. When I tell you of something that you have done, Daniel, it's usually to accuse you of something or to put you on the spot or to put you on the barrel and say, now do something else. Mm-hmm. Right? This yeah. is how we do. So, Daniel, you gave, me this, you, you gave me this paper you wrote for me to read, period. Yeah. Here's what I think. Well, it's like what I say to my wife all the time. Like, listen, I put a ring on your finger, now make me some dinner. Right? Oh. I see. That follows, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does, right? Okay. Now, that's acceptable, but we definitely don't want that in our liturgy. So, <laughs> I call it the adversarial approach. The adversarial quality of this approach may be ever so slight, but I think it's there. It's not just my opinion. I found that uh, another person in the congregation I, I, I talked with, this, we were talking about this, and she said, yes, I've had the same feeling, that it's, there's, there's, something, there's something a little off, a little awkward, a little mm-hmm. off, a little odd about this, this formula. 
What could they have done? They could have said this, O God, our King, we acknowledge that by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you conquered sin. Or God, O our King, because you conquered sin by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, redeem all our days by this victory. But with this formulation that our liturgies have, mm-hmm. O God, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you conquered sin, redeem all our days by this victory, what Cardinal Esteves wrote is that, and I quote here, the quality of supplication is adversely affected so that many of the prayer texts now appear to say to God rather abruptly, you did A, now do B. The manner in which language expresses the relationship to God cannot be regarded merely as a matter of style. What he's saying is there is a nuance of, at least a nuance of, of inappropriate, unsuitable feeling. Mm-hmm. And I would contend very much that just as the good cardinal felt, there is something wrong with it that I think many worshipers most likely most likely feel, although they cannot put it into words. Yeah. Well, and, and, and a lot of times that's, that is something that a worshiper struggles with. You'll, you'll find this out when you're in you know, Bible studies or whatever, mm. and the questions start rolling out. Well, if that's what it says, you know, why does it use that? Or if that's what it says, then why has nobody explained this to me? And there could be good reasons for why it's never been explained. You know, maybe you're not in church enough. But I think you're right. If liturgy is actually meant to be a teacher of the theology that the church holds, and it's unclear, or in some cases it's clearly wrong, then you have a congregant who's walking away with an understanding of, or a misunderstanding that they can't articulate. A misunderstanding that is difficult or impossible to articulate. And what about the poor person from the street with no relationship to God who wanders in mm-hmm. to a church service yeah. and gets perhaps the wrong, a wrong idea com- completely? Yeah. Well, and, and I think that to play devil's advocate, I think priests and pastors would say, well, that's what our catechism is for. If he's really serious about, you know, finding, I think sometimes they take a very predetermined or deterministic view, like, you know, the people who God wants in his church are going to be in his church, and they'll go through catechism, and then they'll get their understanding. I lived for many years in West African villages doing Bible translation. I will say it again. The mother tongue always wins. Mm. Always wins. I remember a praise course in the Mbe language in southeastern Nigeria that Christian, village Christians would sing and it goes biele oyoyo uchue yefe and in english you would recognize it as what a mighty god we serve what a mighty god we serve you you may remember that yeah. old praise chorus well they attempted to translate it and that's what they were but the translation oyoyo doesn't mean mighty it means random, unexplainable, could be, it's often used pejoratively. Like chaos? Could be random. When you say pejorative, you mean insult, right? Uh, Negatively, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they were singing because of the, 
they could have they could have used other expressions for the exp- uh, uh, to get the idea of the might of God across, mm-hmm. but instead they got across his randomness, his unexplainability, and so uh, this I would argue is the kind of understanding or misunderstanding that very often people who are exposed to the teachings of the church experience if those teachings are not well framed. Mm-hmm. And if they are not framed in the language of the people, there is this assumption that archaic language, old language, is more beautiful. Well, to our ethnocentric ears, maybe so. The, the, the archaic language is perhaps more beautiful to our ears because it's less common mm. now. I have nothing against—I like old language myself. Yeah. But surely the priority needs to be good comprehension of the revealed truth of God. Mm-hmm. And that if we are concerned, as we should be, with maintaining solid gospel, evangelical, and church tradition, it ought to be on the level of maintaining the doctrine, the teaching, the truths. And then if there's any space left over, we can think about including old language Mm -hmm. as long as we can make it comprehensible. But the idea of... This is where translators will often pull their hair out in in seeking to make good translations. The idea of perpetuating false nuances or uncomfortable or awkward nuances of language to the point of where an unsettled feeling is produced without anyone ever actually being able to put their finger on what it is they're feeling. Mm -hmm. That has to be guarded against. And and our liturgies do it to some extent. Well, yeah, and also our popular Christian literature does it to a certain extent, too. I mean, outside of, you know, the Anglican Church, and not just the Anglican Church, this isn't necessarily a direct result of having liturgies, but this idea of having a feeling that you can't articulate has become what, what um, it's people don't like the term because it sounds bad, but I, this is the only way I know how to call it, is that there's this... There's this pursuit of emotional highs in mm. Christian church that is that is seen as achieved when you have this feeling that you can't describe. And it becomes this vicarious pursuit. And I think that that's being parroted a lot, especially in, in churches that don't have a formal liturgy that can kind of rail, ring uh, or uh, hem that in. But I think that, in closing, I think that you actually touch on something that's really important, is that if the comprehension isn't there, then the question seems to be, then what's the point of the liturgy? If you're going to have a liturgy that doesn't bring a... If the purpose is to educate people in the doctrine of the Church in a way that gives them confidence in what the Church actually teaches, that they have a confidence in, the understa- in their own understanding of what the Church actually teaches, then hmm. if the liturgy doesn't do that, then it probably is deficient. Would you agree with that? Right? Yes. Going yeah. on nearly 100 years ago, C.S. Lewis was addressing some ordinands, seminarians ready to be ordained to the Church of England priesthood. And he said he thought that one examination for the priesthood should be to take an article of religion and to turn it into ordinary English. mm that the ordinary person could understand. He was advocating, actually, that 
that the framers of liturgy and of explanations of Christian doctrine actually test their explanations. Imagine that, testing them by going to the average person on the street and asking them what they understood. Yeah. He talked about one gentleman. He brought to him a prayer that the church had recently revised. It was a prayer for, I believe, the judges and magistrates that they should indifferent, indifferently administer justice. And the working class man said, oh, I know what that means. It means they should administer justice, not making any difference between one chap and the next. And then Lewis said, now this is the way the church has revised it, that, that the judges, for a prayer for the judges and magistrates, that they should impartially administer justice. Justice. This was the proposed revision. He said, and what does that mean? And the man said, mm, impartially. He said, I wouldn't know that. So it is a case of, it, Lewis's point was that it was a case that the proposed revision actually made matters, it actually made matters worse. It took away comprehension. Mm-hmm. And Lewis's point was further that the only way to tell whether any revision or any translation is good or not, is go out and test it. Mm-hmm. Ask people what they think. Yeah, It's what I did when I addressed the, the question of the subjunctive and found 50% of the people misunderstood it. Yeah, Or when I went to uh, the church's teenagers with the revised Psalms of Miles Coverdale and I asked, I re, we, we spent about an hour going through some of the Coverdale Psalms, and I asked them what they understood. Yeah. I was shocked when the psalmist in Miles Coverdale's Psalms calls, calls God his deliverer. Yeah. All they could think of was a mailman or a FedEx worker. <laughs> they had not the slightest idea that, that he was calling God his rescuer. Yeah. Well, and, and I would be curious about the youth today what they would think of the word mystery. Oh. Because, now, the reason why is because the highest, you know, grossing uh, income of of movies, as far as a franchise goes, Mm -hmm. is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, they have made billions of dollars off these movies. And one of their best characters is Spider-Man. And... This seems like a like an offshoot tangent, but it but to 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 kind of go after what you're talking about, this influences people's meanings of words. And Spider Man, uh, their most recent one, uh, the third one was like top ten in the world, you know, at the box office. And one of the villains is named Mysterio. <laughs> he is not somebody that's unsolved riddles. Mysterio is a liar and a deceiver. So now the question would become. What do the next generation of Christians think the word mysteries mean? Because I said it was a, a, you know, something that we can't comprehend. You said you, your reference was Sherlock Holmes, like an unsolved riddle. But the next generation who comes up, they might see it as a deception. Hmm. And so it'd be interesting for you youth pastors out there, I know I at least have one, uh, to ask your youth. And this makes the translation problem much more apparent, even though it's nuanced, because as the kids come up and they grow up, they're going to have the same problem with what C.S. Lewis talked about. Well, I can understand, you know, indifference. You should, you know, one chapter to the next, you should judge them fairly. But right. impartiality, I don't understand. When we oversee or promote or help or help organize 
the translation of the scriptures into minority languages mm-hmm. around the world, the rule of thumb that we have is that a revision is needed every 20 years wow. to keep up with the change in, under, in, in understanding of the, in the language itself yeah. by native speakers, by, by the language's own speakers, every 20 years. Wow. And I think it's right. I think it's true. I think it's right. Well, Jim, do you have anything else you want to add? Yes. For all you liturgical worshipers out there, keep worshiping. And don't lose heart. Remember that it's easy to find ways to improve the liturgy, but it's easy to focus upon the flaws in liturgy and not upon the good things. Well, and I think if, uh, you know, liturgy is an expression of the, of the Christian adventure to a certain extent, would you agree? That it's the Christian life expressed in corporate worship? Yes, absolutely. And if Christians get their Christian life wrong and are expected to stay faithful to their Savior, then uh, we should probably maybe have the same grace for our liturgies that we have for ourselves. Would you yes. agree with that? Yes, absolutely. So in that, in, in that vein... Do you want to close us out with a collect from the Book of Common Prayer? Here is a collect from Thomas Aquinas. Let us pray. Give me, O Lord, a steadfast heart, which no unworthy thought can drag down, an unconquered heart, which no tribulation can wear out, an upright heart, which no unworthy purpose can tempt aside. Bestow upon me understanding to know you, diligence to seek you, wisdom to find you, and faithfulness that may finally embrace you. Amen. Amen. Is that a good one to end on? Yes. All right. Well, Jim, always fun to talk to you. I've been very encouraged by this conversation. And for all you Christians out there, whether you're liturgical or not, whether you drink wine or grape juice, keep thinking. Did I say that right, Laura? Estevis. 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 We're not going to actually include all that. I just, I'm practicing.